This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Ah, uh, we're here. Time for a regular show this week. It's been a little bit since we've done one of our main episodes because we've been so uh, locked in on our other project going right now, Bookbird Summer. Of course, I'm sure you've seen us post incessantly about it. Um, we've got a really fun episode today, though. We're going to kind of talk about. I guess it's hard to actually describe capitalism. It. It's, yeah. We're going to talk about capitalism, our feelings, and cancel culture. <laughs> it's going to be a number of things and pride. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, we think it's going to be pretty good. So, uh, before we get to any of that, um, how about the basic rundown, please? Absolutely. So it is June, which means we are in the inaugural week of Bookbird Summer. Eric mentioned it. If you follow us on Twitter, you probably. We do not have the rights for this yes, song. Yes, we do. No, no we, we don't. No, don't we know, don't. You don't know what I did. I can play this whenever I want. I'm not playing it. This is like in the background. Pretend this is like a passing car. This is like a truck out the window is driving by with this. I don't have control over that. <gasps> We're going to get sued. Mm, We're not going to get sued. Bananarama and I are the best of friends. Mm, 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 mm. Nobody report us, please. If you narc on us to Bananarama, that's it. We're blocking you. That's an instant block for me. Anyway, the rundown, please. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, so, it's Bookbird Summer. <laughs> You're missing. Eric is doing a little dance in his chair, which is why I'm cracking up right now. Um, he's surprisingly got some moves oh, in those. There's nothing surprising about it. Very, in those very narrow hips of his. Um, mm. <laughs> so, in addition to our regular query show and our first pages show that we put out on Patreon and then kind of our flexisode or a, a, a grouping of mini episodes, which we've been doing, um, we're kind of like leaning in to a series of content this summer that's just going to like foster community and remind us why we love books and we keep coming back to them and, yes. you know, like, what keeps us in this business um, rather than, like, things that make us sad about this business. Um, so we're <laughs> And we gonna, never talk about those. Because we, we never <laughs> talk about that. Um, so... <laughs> So we're going to be doing things like a book club. We're going to be doing a series of interviews. We've got some essays. We've got some fun, like, photojournalism sort of things. I'm cooking up um, writing prompts. You name it. Uh, so that'll be happening between now and Labor Day. So you can head on over to Patreon if you haven't already signed up. It's not any, like, extra. It's just at the $8 a month here. We're just, like, doing a bunch of extra stuff this summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and if you have queries or first pages or requests for Bookbird Summer or suggestions or anything like that, we're at printroompodcast at gmail.com. And I think that is, like, I really actually want to underscore that a little bit because, like, a big point of this summer is, to, is the back and forth, right? Like, we actually really are hoping to hear from you. Like, we have a lot of content planned on our end, right? Like, we're sort of ready to, um, you know, we're going to be rolling out things. We've got interviews. We've got some written things. We're going to be doing some writing prompts, all this kind of stuff. But a lot of it is going to be driven by what you guys send us. You know, like, if you've got stories, if you've got things you're thinking about that you want us to talk about, whatever it is, like, please be in touch. Like, the point of this summer is 
to just have us all together and in conversation in sort of a regular way. So please don't be shy about emailing us. Please don't be shy about tweeting at us. Buy a mug. Buy a shirt. Oh, get yeah, ready. we have merch. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, we've got merch. Um, it's We're going to have fun this summer, and that's going to come from, I think, sort of an organic back and forth with you guys. So just please, please add us. <laughs> First <laughs> only time I'll ever say that this summer. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's yeah. jump into yeah. the regular episode right well, so, now. The way we want to start, and we've sort of been thinking about this one for a little while. Um, I guess it's been like you know a month or so ago, and maybe it's you know the issue is still sort of ongoing. But uh, Jonathan Carp, the publisher of Simon and Schuster, um, was sort of under the spotlight lately, um, just because. Um, I think the the main flashpoint was the Mike Pence book, if I remember correctly. Like, it was that, you know, they're publishing. It's the same conversation we've had a million times, and I promise that's not what we're going to be doing here today. But a bunch of Simon & Schuster employees even signed a letter that basically said, we, we don't want to publish this. We signed this. the letter. We did sign that letter. Um, you know, they basically said, look, we don't want to publish this book from this person. You know, and there was a whole sequence of things. There was even, like, some leaked audio from an all-staff meeting with him where they sort of confronted him about it. A whole long thing. But I want to really focus on one phrase that Carp used in his um, – sort of his rebuttal to <laughs> basically everyone in our circle who said, hey, how come you're publishing, you know, a book by Mike Pence? Um, and he's basically said this, distilled into a phrase – we came to publish, not to cancel. Now, that's a framework that, and you know, sort of a turn of phrase that is going to sound very familiar to you if you're someone who has, like, I don't know, paid attention to any sort of, like, you know, online politics discourse over the last year. Like, a big new hobby horse, you know, in right-wing circles is to call every time you disagree with them to be cancel culture, all this kind of stuff. Um, and amidst a you know several million dollar book deal yes, platform, exactly. yeah, <laughs> it's funny how everyone who gets canceled immediately gets rich. Yes, um, but somebody please cancel me. I would very much <laughs> like a mansion. Well, so like it's he sort of sets up the same framework, right? And we've seen politicians do it. We've seen other media types in different industries do it. And finally, the cancel discourse has arrived at publishing. And what he's basically saying, and it's just something we've sort of talked about on this show before too, is that. If we don't, if we choose not to publish Mike Pence, who, in case you are emerging from a like a decade long coma or something, <laughs> was the vice president of the United States, um, a you know career public figure, does not. It would be extremely difficult to take away speaking opportunities from Mike Pence. Like this is someone who has the perfect ability to get his ideas out there, and and boy has he ever. Um, but. The, you know what he's basically saying is if we if we choose not to publish him we are canceling him and we are we're being censorious and we're not going to get into what censorship means because we've done that already but like it's basically saying if unless we give Mike Pence however many million dollars to publish his you know I don't even know what it is like a memoir an alternate history whatever <laughs> whatever alternate history no, it that's, is that, you know, that's sort of, totally what um, it is and like then it's akin to being some sort of like censorious force that is a detriment to our culture and the reason this sticks out to me is because obviously anyone listening to this show or most people listening to the show i have to imagine at this point and certainly you and i 
we disagree with that framework or we disagree with that sentiment, right? Like it's not can- you're not canceling Mike Pence by not giving him a five million dollar book deal. That's not what's happening. But I'm really concerned that Carp and others like him are able to set that as the terms of engagement. Like these, you know, because what's really happening here, apart from any one issue, is this idea of defining terms, right? And so I become deeply concerned when people like this and right wing, you know, figures in general. Um, I guess I don't claim to know anything about you know Carp's actual you know professed politics or anything, but this impulse you see frequently on the right. Um, it's they're attempting to define terms of engagement, right? Like they're basically saying this is what censorship means. And it's a very different definition than what it actually is. They're basically, you know, if you don't give us millions of dollars to spout our ideas on the biggest platform possible, that is akin to censorship. And if those are the terms, and if we are going to continually be put in a position where we have to disagree with those terms of engagement, we are never going to win, ever. Like if we, because we've already lost the fight if those are the definitions and we're simply choosing whether or not to agree with them, you know. And so what I think I want to get into in this conversation today is, I mean, you know, we sort of riffed on it earlier, you know, before the show, like, what does it actually mean to win? Like, you know, because that was, I think, a really great follow-up <laughs> question when I sort of posed this as an idea. You're like, well, what are we actually trying to win? You know, yeah. or what does it mean to win? And what are what's the environment we're working in where we're even trying to do that? And so I feel like that's our jumping off point. We're actually not going to spend too much more time on CARP himself or any of these, you know, these sorts of statements. But like, as we sort of envision a large-scale publishing discourse that might be different or one that we're actually able to shift, like, where do we go from here? How, mm-hmm. do, we, how do we course correct away from accepting, you know, the terms of engagement that the most reactionary figures in our public life are setting for us, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think before, before we jump into defining what, winning publishing yeah. means yeah. for like the little guy right, right. <laughs> i i also want to bring in you know speaking of pence's revisionist history <laughs> um <laughs> i've been thinking a lot about pride over the last couple yeah. of weeks so it's it's june this is pride month sure um and there's been if you've missed this discourse i'm very happy for you <laughs> uh but there's been this huge like sprawling argument online about the place that police have at Pride, right. the the place that Kink has at Pride, um, kind of just people revising and and forgetting that this is an event that is commemorative commemorating like a literal riot. Right. Yeah. Um and about the kind of just general commodification there. And so I've been I've been thinking about terms a lot, right? And I want you to specifically focus on like that commodification part. Yeah. So I think you know the difficult thing with the with like pride, for example, um, is that we're you know this it's something commemorating a very marginalized community mm-hmm. that has become mainstream, and what happens then is you get Nike and you get um, Target and, you know, Walmart and all of these banks, all of these institutions um, 
doing mouth service in the very same way that like last summer when the protests and uh, riots were happening around the country in response to George Floyd's murder, like you had all of these statements of support mm-hmm. for right. um, for black people in America and, you know, all these pledges for money and all of this and from these big corporations. And like it's been a year. Nothing mm-hmm. has changed. Yeah. They haven't. They haven't actually done anything other than like posting some certain things. And so I think like one of one of the frameworks that I want to talk about with regards to like winning the publishing conversation or winning publishing from you know from the POV of a marginalized person or um, a you know kind of like the little guy in general is the the idea that like. There's always going to be, you know, a bigger force coming in and encroaching and sort of claiming something. Appropriating. Yeah, Yeah. appropriating it. Um, And so, like, I want to make it clear in the context of this publishing conversation that this is not like when we talk about winning, this is an ongoing thing. Like once, you know, like once Pride became something that, you know straight couples brought their kids to (laughs) and like and also and i think crucially brought their kids to and now are you know following that same online conversation you're discussing right like demanding that the event be kid friendly specifically for their children you know what i mean they're trying to sanitize it in a way that you know like i think is going to be the theme of this episode is very appropriative is very like trying to revise you know what this thing actually was. Yeah, you know, trying to sanitize it, it, trying to commodify it, trying to everything. And so I think, like, we're working under a few different frameworks here, right? When like coming back to publishing in general, yeah. we're working under the framework that we see in all aspects of <laughs> of the 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 world, right? Yeah. Which is the the framework of capitalism. Um, but I think like holding and su- sustaining and giving the the idea of capitalism like the the talking points the where we get to cancel right mm-hmm. um that's very much i mean it's 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 a capitalist reasoning like the reason Jonathan Karp is publishing Mike Pence's book is money yeah. like that is the right. reason the reason is not some ideological it, like we're going <laughs> to we we need to give him a platform he can't be canceled like nobody ca- it he has does, nothing to do with ideas right nothing to do with ideas yeah. and so and so i think the important thing but he wants us to think that it's the ideas and i think it's really important to draw the line between like even though capitalism is the underlying reasoning for all of this discourse and all of this stuff that's happening Everybody will always come back to the um, to these kind of like bad faith intellectual arguments, which I think it is not a big stretch to say that like the terms of this, like we're operating under a definition of white supremacy. We're operating under a definition of anti-Semitism and homophobia and ableism Mm -hmm. and like. These are the structures that give capitalism the language to convince you that people who have, like, no right to be, you know, pushed forward in the discourse as much as they have, that if, you know... It's how they can claim victimhood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I think you make such a really great point about, in even much cleaner, honestly, than what I was saying up front, like... You know, this idea of appropriation, right? Because I actually think that is something that sort of happened with even the definition of cancel, right? Like Mm -hmm. at one point, um, you know, cancellation as an idea or a term was something that, 
you know, marginalized communities, you know, used as a way to, uh, you know, out abusers, to out, you know, bad actors in their community, all these, you know, like, it was actually a tool to protect people, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, and what's happened now is, you know, it's an idea that gained some steam, and so the same thing happened. Like, these giant forces, you know, these giant corporate forces in our culture have glommed onto that, have said, okay, here's a term that we can instead invert and use to further our own pursuit of our own agenda, you know? And it's, so when we talk about, like, what does it mean to win? Or what does it mean to... In publishing. Specifically in publishing. Like, I think resisting that appropriative impulse has got to be front and center, right? And it's something that, I don't know, like, you see it, I mean, the idea of, obviously, you know, we could do a whole episode on appropriation in publishing i mean it's everywhere right but like it's that i think is the central thing you know because that is that's the impulse that is setting these very skewed you know i guess i keep wanting to call it like a battleground right like Mm -hmm. here's the chessboard and it's one they're handing us and it's completely slanted in their direction you know what i mean and the thing that is slanting it is i mean i think these sort of appropriate appropriative and commodifying forces you know yeah i So I talk a lot with my authors, basically in every conversation I have with them um, as we move throughout their careers about, like, where do they want to get to? What do they want to achieve? And for a lot of them, it is writing full time. Mm -hmm. For a lot of them, it is not. Mm -hmm. Um, And those conversations have a lot of, like, sort of monetary requirements because like we live in the United States um but they also have a lot of like experiential goals and so I think about that a lot when I when I talk about winning cuz like on one hand you have an individual who is just succeeding in publishing like is that that can be a win but if we're talking about like wide scale winning right we're talking about creating a culture of book workers and yeah. writers and just people in this industry that make that kind of intellectually dishonest you know faux it like yeah yeah like if 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 you make it so that it is inhospitable for like a Mike Pence book to be published, I mean, you're talking for about example. you're talking about heightening the contrasts and yeah. like showing, you know. And one thing I really like about what you're saying there is what you're describing is a set of tactics and a set of behaviors mm-hmm. that gets beyond just reacting case by case. Yeah. Right. Like because, I mean, I feel like every single week we could do. If we, if you and I want it to, and we don't, <laughs> thankfully for us and for you and for anyone's mental health and sanity, we could do literally like a segment, you know, like here's the horrible, you know, outrageous book that shouldn't exist of the week. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. We could do that every single week with publishing deals. And what I think there is a trap that I am certainly not saying that I am immune from, but having fallen into it several times, it's made me think a little bit. Like... We're never going to, you know, further this discussion. We're never going to get where we want to go if we're trying to respond case by case. Yeah. Right? Like, what actually is required is to do what you just described, which is to gather, you know, the actual people who work in this industry and, in a unified sense, push back on the terms, right? This is 
like so rather than for instance like saying hey you can't publish mike pence i think it's probably more critical and i really applaud the you know simon schuster workers who you know were you know kind of came together on this like to instead say no 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 we disagree with your rationale in general and we do not want to see you apply it to any other projects right push back on the borders you know what i mean of the board like get to what's actually happening you know on like a structural level so that we're not just oh milo's got a book oh mike pence has got a book oh this other trump gremlin has a book like we can't we can't do it every single time because one we're gonna run out of energy and it's demoralizing and, and it's fatiguing. not changing the landscape and it doesn't change anything because yeah. they'll just do the next one or some other pre- like what what <laughs> the other funny thing that happens anytime we're even on our own terms successful right like oh we made this press drop this book what happens someone else picks it up yeah and then they publish it and the same thing you know what i mean like there's no um <laughs> you can't win book by book yeah. we will not win book by book they're hoping we fight book by book and I think I think the sea change of, you know, turning the industry into an inhospitable place for these types of projects to be acquired in the first place. Because once they're acquired, yes. we've already lost. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, I think the first step, you know, is what a lot of individual agents, a lot of individual editors, a lot of individual writers are doing, which is they're bringing, you know, books in one at a time. They're bringing authors in one at a time to show like hey, actually, we can make tons of money without being morally abhorrent. Imagine that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, like, that is really just the first step to allow everyone to have a foothold to do, I think, the real structural work, which is to work really, really hard to divest this industry in general, this industry of ideas, this this industry of, like, cultural capital. Mm Mm-hmm from the single drivers of like power and money mm-hmm. um you know we we lament on the show all the time about how publishing it, it's just like so frustrating for us as agents and i'm sure for many other people that publishing as you know and, and big big organizations in publishing are so unwilling to claim responsibility for shaping yes. culture. Yes, it's a complete abdication. Right. Completely abdicating their responsibility for that. They're responding to it. We call it the cable newsification. Yes. We call you know, whatever. Um and so I think that there is like there's a real path forward into how to claim responsibility for the culture that will then I think lead into de-emphasizing like power and money and pandering to people like Mike Pence because then who knows like what other books will get um there's a real power in that that I think publishing is forgotten because mm-hmm. they're responding to shareholders they're responding to their boards you know who's uh, got a hell of a lot of power right now hmm. editorial directors oh my god like which I realize is not that big of a statement because that's a pretty high up job but I think we're at a really fascinating juncture because I don't know, like, if you think just in terms of, like, where you and I are at in our careers, Mm -hmm. like, in how long we've been at it and how long maybe a lot of the colleagues we came up with have been at it and all this kind of stuff, like, our friends and the people we know at these houses and the people, obviously, we're always trying to meet new people and do all kinds of stuff like that, but, like, 
the people we are most familiar with, the friends and colleagues and coworkers and anyone in our professional network who we've known for years, they're not assistants anymore. No. You know what I mean? Like, we're all getting older. We're all advancing. And we're getting to the point. You're starting to see it here and there. I know that I have certainly watched certain friends of mine, you know, certain colleagues of mine. Hey, suddenly they're a senior editor. So instead of, you know, the assistant that I knew them as when we were friends, you know what I mean? Like suddenly they're, you know, higher up. Suddenly they have an assistant. Suddenly they're making more decisions. And we are going to hit a juncture because I do think I think that if you polled people at the associate level or lower in publishing right now, I think that most like what we describe on this show would be very broadly popular. Right. Would, 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 I guess well, I guess that's maybe a, maybe a more open question than I imagine, but I think that the program we are describing would appeal to most people in the lower half of you know publishing hierarchy, right? Imagine if a publisher of you know publishers of all the imprints at all of like Penguin Random House yeah. were to claim that their books were successful and culturally re- culturally relevant um and thus became financially yeah. like like if they're culturally relevant they sell enough to make money they're not culturally relevant because they make money exactly imagine yeah, that's if great. they redefine that and i think and i guess what i'm saying here in response to that is like we're getting to a point i think where the people who believe that who want that they're starting to come up for the higher level jobs, right? They're starting to, you know, be in position where, hey, they can actually make those decisions on a more powerful level than just being a young junior editor trying to get something through an ed board. You know what I mean? And so I think we're at kind of a spot where maybe the needle can get moved a little bit, you know? You know, we're seeing bolder actions from book workers. I think that in the we're last... seeing unions. I know, like in the last few years, I mean, I really do think that you know, there has been, and this is not just true of books, but across a lot of different, you know, arts and media industries, like a renewed consciousness about like labor stuff and about like what's actually happening to you at your job. <laughs> and I think that that is something that, um, you know, maybe the arts has been a little bit late to the party to in certain times. Obviously, not always. I'm not trying to paint with a huge broad brush, but if you look at like, you know, sort of, the class consciousness and, you know, those sorts of things, you know, amongst, you know, publishing professionals at the big five, it might, nece- it might lag a little bit behind that, what you might see in other industries that pay similarly, you know what I mean? And it's, I don't know. I mean, I think we are in a spot where I actually feel some optimism and that is, you know, the point of, you know, this summer we are trying to have is optimism and joy and all these things. But I do think there is a little bit of a bite to it, which is to say, yeah, we're cultivating this good feeling and that good feeling can be put to use. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like and, in in unionizing your labor force, in pushing back and making it so that part of an acquisition's question when there's a, a figure like Mike Pence or Kellyanne Conway or even Donald Trump, when you have that figure, you go, will my workers walk out yeah. on this? Yeah. Like that is a real consideration. And that's not something that was happening three years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago. Well, one thing also that happens there, you know, under those conditions, definitions of cancellation that people like Jonathan Karp want to hand down 
they stop making sense real fast when the re- when it's not just oh we're doing this for my personal ideological you know rationale but rather here's what everyone with an editorial stake in this company thinks most of them disagree with me and therefore the book like that's not that's something very different than like some sort of censorship that's just democracy you know what i mean like and i i wonder about that a lot too like how where would we get if more people who worked on the books had a say and i'm not saying like every single book needs to be like voted on by every single person at a publishing house because that just sounds unwieldy but like (laughs) you know i mean i do think that sort of editorial you know that sort of editorial work you know those sorts of decisions they could be made a little bit less unilaterally in particularly by the people who are currently in position to make those unilateral decisions which i think skew a certain way in terms of um class and race and gender all these you know i mean we know who we're talking about in these positions it's guys like jonathan carp you know and it's i don't know i mean i guess like Bringing more people in allows a light to be shined on that, like, white supremacist framework, right? Bringing more people in allows for more pushback against a project that is only here for um, capitalist reasons versus cultural reasons. Yeah. And I think, I, I, you know, I keep coming back to... Like, we have to change the conversation to win, right? And winning yes. winning is, it's an active word. It's not something that you get. And then you say, oh, we'll never have to worry about this again. Congrats, everyone. Congrats, everyone. We won against <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we, we talk about all these things. We talk about the, the dissolution of the mid-list. We talk about diversity of projects. We talk about diversity of book workers. We talk about labor. We talk about paying authors. We talk about, um, you know, actually acknowledging in the system that the power is not actually where we're told that the power is. And all of these things on their surface feel very separate, but all of them have the same underpinnings. The reason that they are problems, the reason that people are pushing up against them, the reason that, um, you know, it is very much a David and Goliath sort of situation and very few people actually win in it is because of that power and money sort of backbone that we have here. And the more, you know, I, I, I've been reading lots of science fiction about like terraforming and stuff. So I keep thinking about like <laughs> making this inhospitable yeah. to yeah. the types yeah. of, of higher ups and the types of yeah. books that are being published. And to make it inhospitable, you have to make it hospitable for something else. Right. Yeah. Like, Something has to shift. Something has to change. Like, we have to introduce another organism that can, like, make their mark and change things. And I think that's collective worker agency. Yeah. You know? Like, that's what needs to come in place. And that's what we're seeing in that Simon & Schuster letter and some of these other actions we've seen at different places where they, you know, like – and so, like, if that's – like, if that's where we're trying to get, like, you know, to answer the question, like, well, what does it mean to win? What are we actually fighting for? How do we do this? It's, you know, get to a place where the people who actually work at these places have a say over what's going on. 
Imagine that. <laughs> Which is so basic, but it's so difficult, and we are so far from that on the level we deserve it. And I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that clears stuff up a lot because I actually do have a fair amount of optimism with regard to what people in those positions actually think. And I mean, you'll hear that from um, you know labor organizers across all sorts of different spheres of life, where they basically say like, yeah. Everyone agrees with it. Like, we all want this. You know, like, the willpower, like, the general inclination is there. It's just a matter of doing the legwork and, you know, insulating people from, you know, harm and doing enough things to, you know, make it so that we can actually bring that to fruition. And that's obviously very hard work. But I guess I just want to voice here that I do think that the inclination in publishing right now, and I don't, I don't think I would have said this a few years ago, you know, it's there. Like, I do think people want this stuff. And I think that we're in a state of renewed consciousness over what's getting published and why and how even the books that people claim aren't political actually very much are, all that kind of stuff. Like, we have sort of a window here. You know what I mean? Like, consciousness is up. Like, if there's one very faint silver lining to the Trump years, it's that people are paying attention. People are seeing these things in ways you know, as forces in their lives that they perhaps weren't, you know, previously, you know, and I think that's really like those are that's a favorable condition that we can work with. Before we move on to our Toluna May concern, I want to address the power of readers and writers specifically, because a lot of what we've been talking about has been kind of in company or in industry sort Mm -hmm. of action and pressure. Um, It's really hard in books like this to tell a reader that they're actually being useful when they're like putting their money where their mouth is. You know, we tell readers that all the time. It's like, well, if you want to, you know, if you, you know, it's capitalism, right? (laughs) If you want to support something, buy it. If you don't support something, don't buy it. Right. That is outside the equation for this type of book. Like yes. we are we cannot play in that sandbox because books by people like Kellyanne Conway and Mike Pence, these projects are not meant to be bought by you and me. Like us not buying them doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Nobody yep. was expecting us to buy them. Yep. These books are purchased mostly in bulk by foundations. And I think that's a key point. Yeah, and these and these particular groups have very deep pockets, and that's why they're really good sellers because somebody like Mike Pence can say, "Well, hey, this you know super PAC that supports me can buy you know a hundred thousand copies right. and give them away, and then bing, bang, boom, right?" right? Um, it it's not really going to work <laughs> to to use your money in this context, um, but. What's really powerful is, as a reader, is that we have access to other readers in a way that we've never had before. We have access to rights reports in ways that we've never read before, like we've never had Mm -hmm. before. We have access to just like platforms in general. And so before, I think it's important that readers recognize their power before it gets to, here's my credit card number. Right. Here, swipe it at the bookstore. Um, if publishers, like, if publishers are worried about backlash, that might change things. Because right now, they're operating under the structures of, 
well, we're going to be wait, we're we're going to wait to be criticized before changing anything or like pretending that we have morals or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that as a reader, what you can do is you can be not just somebody who consumes, but I think being a reader and moving forward in this idea of resetting the terms for what winning means and in an effort for, you know, the little guys to actually win publishing, you can be an element that's not just a consumer, but is an advocate and and is a a voice that somebody is is forced to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I will say you should swipe, (laughs) swipe your card when it comes to supporting individual authors who are marginalized and showing those, because like a lot of those books are not actually meant to make money. Because it makes it, it also makes a difference to those books. Like in a way that it just simply wouldn't with something on a much higher corporate scale, like a, you know, right wing think tank book. Right. But I think, I think it's really important for people to understand that like, (sighs) Books aren't necessarily acquired because they're going to make the publisher money. Right. Um, because especially like the really big ones, um, we're talking about hundreds of books every year. We're talking about books that have an advance of maybe nothing all the way to books that have an advance of millions and millions and millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. This is a huge gap. These books are meant for different things. And I don't think that it's incorrect to say that a lot of the big five soon to be big four acquire projects particularly by diverse or progressive authors expecting them to make money i think that a lot of the reasons why they're acquiring these projects is to say well hey look like we're we're about ideas Mm -hmm. um when really like you can just look at the fact that they're paying a black debut author you know a thousand dollars versus paying pence millions and millions and millions (laughs) and you can go "Mm, these two one of these things is not like the other um i mean i've been told that before in-house but you know i I remember trying to like acquire you know literary fiction or something that i was really interested in and sort of being scolded that don't you know what keeps the lights on in here before so that you can actually do the books you like i mean this model is not a secret you know i mean they do these giant books that are meant to do things like that and use the other ones as a means of pretending that's not your model. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> so you know. can, but so what you can do yeah. as a as a reader is you can change that model for them. You can yeah. go, hey, this book that you just wanted to look like you were cool and progressive by yeah. publishing, and you didn't actually expect like spend to make expect to make money on it look at how much money it's making. it's a winner yeah it's a winner yeah it wins so don't you want to like aren't we're gonna we're gonna redraw the ideas of yeah. what that is and i think for writers this might sound really trite but the way to to aid in this entire work which will kind of start with the individual book workers and kind of end with writers or vice versa. I don't know which direction you're going in, but but it sounds really trite, but the way is just to like keep going. Yeah. Cuz yeah. if if like you're providing good content, you're providing marketable content, you're providing content that bridges that gap between that capitalism, that cultural influence and art. Like we have to give other options before we can redraw the playing field. We have to say, we can't just blow everything up. We have to go, no, 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 we're replacing it with something else. Right. Um, so I think that's 
that's a really key element. You know, it's it's one thing to say, you know, buy midlist and support the support the unions in the big five and, you know, yell at Jonathan Karp for being, you know, just facile about the, right. <laughs> about like what cancel culture actually is. Right. Um, but there's there's real power there and that power comes out of surprise and, and changing the expectation of these big corporations. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a good place to leave it. Okay, well, let's let's do the two Luna May concern, which I'm really excited about. Please, I actually really love this one. Okay, fire away. Hi, Laura and Eric. I'm interning with a well-known agent in my genre, and it's going great. In recent conversation about my career prospects, they suggested that I might be ready to take on my own client soon. I'm really excited, but I also feel kind of adrift. Because while I believe their agency is reasonably respected, I don't really know its reputation among agents, how it would support my career, and what its workplace culture is like. How do I begin to gain access to the agent side whisper network? How would I know if this agency were a good fit for me? And how would I know when it's time to move on? Some of the all-staff meetings have left me cringing, and I don't know if that's just the unbearable whiteness of publishing, which is all caps, which I like. Um... And it will be the same everywhere, or if I should actively be pursuing more progressive and diverse workplaces. That's a great question. It is, isn't um, it? So, I mean, the question is, like, how do you – it seems like functionally, like, first and foremost, the question is, how do you suss out if this place is a fit for you or not? And, like, I think the first thing, you know, that I would tell anyone in a position like this is – you know, trust trust what you're seeing. You know what I mean? Like on the one hand, it sounds like I guess I'm a little, and I'm a little unclear on something, um, just by nature of only knowing this letter, not their whole situation. But like on the one hand, it sounds like you're really enjoying your time at this agency, right? Like you've said here, it's going great. Um, it's they're so only working with one of the agents at the entire agency, though. It sounds like you are at least feel, and obviously, if I'm wrong, you know, write us back or something. But like, it sounds like this one agent you're working with, you're feeling like is offering decent mentorship. You know, I guess I'm going off of it's going great, right? Like maybe that means you're doing a great job, even though you hate it. In which, <laughs> in which, in which case, you should maybe look somewhere else. But. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of, like, getting access to the Whisper Network, I mean, I, I feel like that's less of a, like, a codified thing and more of a just start asking people for honest conversations. Like, is there anyone – here's a question for you. Is there anyone at that agency? Maybe it's even, you know, your – you know, the agent you're working under who um, – I don't know. It seems like you've got enough of a rapport with that they're willing to kind of talk to you about, you know, advancing. Like, do you, would, do you feel comfortable, you know, asking them to, you know, get a cup of coffee or something away from the office and just kind of, you know, talk to them in that way? Is there anyone else at the agency you feel like would be, you know, approachable in that way? Because, like, if it feels like there's no one at this place that you would even be able or, you know, inclined to ask for an honest conversation – then that would be an indicator for me that maybe it would be better to, you know, look for maybe a different opportunity somewhere, you know. But um, I don't know. Like, I, I just remember, like, obviously, you know, I'm in a, you know, a different spot and I was in a, you know, different sort of situation when I entered publishing. But I remember being an intern and, like, before I got the job, you know, I was someone who did do an internship at a place and then get hired there as an actual 
uh, you know, full-time assistant and all that kind of stuff. And the thing I remember doing, you know, as it kind of got time where we were like, oh, you know, is Eric going to stay on? Is he going to leave? You know, I really felt strongly about wanting to stay because I was able to have a lot of those kinds. Like, I felt comfortable going to people who worked there already Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, can we you know, get a drink after work and talk honestly about this, you know, or can we like, I was feeling as though I was building that sort of rapport with people who work there. And so like, if you feel that, then I would maybe tap into that as your starting point and like say, Hey, look, I'm trying to get like, it would not be, let me put it to you this way. If I were working with an intern and we don't have any interns because we don't have any money to pay an intern. (laughs) um, But were we, were we to have an intern, you know, and they came to me and said, you know, can we talk about this and can you maybe introduce me to some other, you know, people in the field, you know, that can maybe offer some perspective. That would be a conversation I would be happy to have. Like, and I would expect that as part of, like, the internship experience. Like, I guess I guess I'm, as I'm, like, thinking aloud about it, like, that would be the place I would want to start. Like, your inroad is with this I would hope with this person that you feel you have enough of a rapport with to speak honestly with right Mm -hmm. and so before I ramble anymore and I do have more thoughts like what what do you think about this I have lots of really complicated feelings about this particularly because of like my own path in agenting um, which you know maybe we'll talk about a little bit more in depth later but like for me a lot of these there, there's a lot of questions in mm-hmm. this letter, and yeah. I think, and I think the concept of, like, is this agency for me, comes down to, like, three separate buckets of criteria. Okay. So the very, very first one, um, the one that I think is, you know, the the first question anybody should ask is, am I being exploited? Like, will yeah. this place exploit me? Great. So I'm talking about expectations for when you're online. I'm talking about, like, if you sell a book, is your agency taking half of your commission? Because yeah. if they are, maybe mm, don't. Yeah, maybe don't. Yeah. Um, and you can, like, definitely, like, there are a lot of agents, especially, that you can find online um, or, like, various other spaces. And feel free to, like reach out if you need access to these spaces but like you can reach out and just do a general like hey what is there your like the cut that your agency takes from your sales because like fundamentally you're a contractor right Mm -hmm. and so like this agency that's training you can tell you that like this is totally reasonable and maybe it's totally not i don't know um and so like i'm talking about like money i'm talking about labor um I I think that like that's a really really key part like and then to to kind of come along with that it beyond the question of like am I being exploited or will I be exploited um is the will this place like are they looking at me as just like a book farm or are they actually going to grow my career so I do know like some agents for example that like aren't allowed to do their own contracts yeah. That's pretty bad if yeah. you're an agent. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, or aren't really, like, given the tools or the resources or the knowledge to really kind of, like, 
figure out how to best serve their clients and how to best grow their career and understand like the nuances there. Because remember, like this is an apprenticeship industry, but there's also a lot of space for you to kind of just like figure out how you want to do it. If, if that's a good way to mm. like to to say it. Um, and a part of that is like culture. You know, can you do you can you go to other agents at your agency for a second look or will they look at a pitch and tell you to stop being, you know, so like mincy with your words and just tell somebody that this is the best book you've ever read? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, are are there going to be people who can identify your weaknesses, help you strengthen them, and then help support you in the strengths that you already have. Well, I think the key there is is really important, which is to say that, you know, a lot of times when people work as an internship, you know, that feels like, okay, this is the mentorship period, and then I'm going to get hired, and mm-hmm. they're just going to turn me loose. And you which don't is wa- what you, happens a lot of the time. You don't want that. Like, you are still, what you really want to suss out is to, I guess, like, my priority were I you would be to have an honest conversation with someone who works there, probably this person you now have some sort of professional rapport with, um, and, you know, just ask them, like, you know, if I were to start taking on my own clients and stuff, is that the end of me learning things from the rest of you? (laughs) And you don't want, you know what I mean? Like, or am I going to be part, do I have a support network? Because there have been so, so many instances over the last couple of years. I, I mean, I'm just, like, rattling through like episodes from this industry in my head right now of like agent things where the root cause of the problem is that the person just flat out didn't have anyone around them to help them to offer context to say, Hey, maybe that's not right. Or, Hey, like, and that's kind of what you're saying. Like, is the agency just treating you as like this sort of exploited book farm or are they taking interest in you as a person? And so like, I don't know. Like, and that's it. I mean, I will say that that is a difficult thing to suss out. You yeah, know what I mean? Is. Like, because no, it it's is. something, it's something that can definitely shift. It's something that shifted for me. Um, you know, I had a lot of investment in mentorship early on, and then it completely like <laughs> fell apart. So, <laughs> um, but before before I kind of get into that, um, I think the third bucket. So, the am I being exploited? Am I being um, like built as an individual, not just as yeah. as like a contract moneymaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the third bucket is, is this a safe place for my authors? Yeah. Good like, point. And, and I'm talking about like support. I am talking about safety from aggressions and microaggressions. I am talking about um, a team that can give them what they need. I'm talking about accommodations. Like, is this a company that is not only equipped, but invested in, like, really meeting this author where they are and keeping them safe. And I, you know, it is, like, no matter how good of an individual agent that you are, no matter how good, and everybody fucks up, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I yep. mean? Um, and it's, that's that's just, like, the way of it, right? But, like, no matter how good you are serving one person, if your overall agency is undermining you in any sort of way, shape, or form, or in an area of their like an area of their work, um, it it's not a good place. It's not a good place for that author, and like they might be right to leave you, and or you might be right to leave and take them with you. Um, a, f- a really easy fundamental question is just to look around and say, 
are there are other agents at this place working on the sort of books with the sort of authors that I want to work on, right? Like, if, you know, your question is one of, you know, the unbearable whiteness of the industry, like, look at this agency in particular. Is it one that, like, are you seeing, you know, a diverse client list? Are you seeing a, you know, are are you seeing the projects in-house already that you want to, to... you know, roughly work on categories. And are you hearing like them be yeah. talked about in the yes. way that they should a, be talked right, about? Right, exactly. Like, so it's, and if you're not, and I sort of wonder if maybe the impetus of this letter is that you're not, because, you know, if you were feeling entirely like rosy and good about this place, probably you're not sending a letter to, to Lunate May Concern. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I do think then maybe your priority then is. Asking, you know, this person you're working with, who else can I talk to? You know, is there someone else? And talk to the writers. And they should, they should, I I guess, like, personally, if an intern of mine said, hey, I'm trying to just, like, grow my professional network a little bit. Is there a colleague? Is there a, you know, another agent somewhere else that I can just talk to for perspective? Can I talk to some of the writers about what they need out of an agent? Yes. Anything like that. Like, they should offer you that, and if they don't, if they like get cagey about that or something, then that's probably the answer yeah. you're looking for. And, you know, and I will say that, like, it is okay, especially in an industry that is so hard to get into, especially in an industry that you know loves kicking people out, and any sort of like foothold is a miracle. Yeah, like. It is okay if your first agency job doesn't equally fulfill all three of these things. It's like any job, you know. Like any job, yeah. right? And I and I think that like how like what things you're prioritizing, you know, first, second, and third and how much nonsense you're willing to put up with will change over time in these three buckets. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I think my my main my main feedback here is to just like draw the lines for yourself figure out exactly how much you're willing to kind of compromise your vision of the ideal agency and cuz like you're allowed to move you're allowed to just make sure that your agency agreement says that you can take your authors with you um come up with <laughs> i i would like spend some time really thinking about yeah. like what are your for the first job and keeping in context that like the perfect agency you know probably doesn't exist right now you know the yeah. perfect play like it, and this is true this is not like a publishing specific problem that's a problem Eric I'm, I'm exploiting myself <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny because it's true um, it's a specific like this is you know something that happens in any field like you're probably not going to land your dream job right out of the gate but what you can do is you can say okay factors a b and c are absolute musts for me mm-hmm. out of the gate even if down the line i want d e and f to be the perfect part of my career but like here's where i really feel the need to start you know and come up with that list and then you know start trying to have conversations around whether or not you know that's those are reasonable things to want or to get out of cuz you know sometimes people Okay, well, I need X, Y, and Z, and those things are simply not what people get in their first job. And now, some of those things you should absolutely get. You know, like what Laura was describing, like workplace safety, being free from feeling like you're being, you know, microaggressed upon, all that kind of stuff. Like, absolutely, that's something that 
you know, should be a red line for you. You know what I mean? And if you feel like that's going to happen to you at this place, then probably you want to go somewhere else. Um, but have, you know, I just keep coming back to the first step I would, if I were in your position, and I have been, I guess, roughly in this position you're in, like, I would find the person I trust at this place I'm currently working, and I would ask to have a frank conversation with them about broader things than just your work there. Yeah. And if they chafe against that, then that's probably not, that's probably the conversation in and of itself, you know? And one, and... Just to just to leave you with one final like piece of advice. One thing I would urge nobody to do, um, but particularly potential agents from marginalized backgrounds, is like don't think that you have like the energy or like are going to be the person who can come into a space that has that you know unbearable whiteness of publishing kind of thing going on in it, and say, well, I can change things. Um, because you shouldn't have to be in that position. You shouldn't have to be in that position. And like, if you are coming in as a baby agent and you've just been apprenticed and you're going to start acquiring your authors at this agency, like that is not the time to be putting together like education for your other agents on microaggressions. Like that is, that is not going to like feed your particular work in a way that is going to be, um, good and supportive like I think the big thing is like as somebody who has had to play um kind of like goalie in between my authors and like certain harmful interactions with other people at my at that agency um Mm -hmm. like if you can't go anywhere else yet and if this is the only place or the best place for you at the moment um you want to spend your time like protecting and supporting your authors, not like educating the rest of the agents who maybe aren't interested and don't want to do anything. Um, So just be like really, really, really careful. Like go back to that exploitation as it's like if your dreams of the perfect agency, like don't let that push you into like allowing yourself to be exploited either. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. (laughs) Um, Good luck. Yeah. It's going to be fine. No, it'll, it's, it's going to work out one way or another. I mean, it's just some period. This is just a specific period in one's career that feels a little uncertain. So yeah. the way you push back against that is you just start seeing things with clear eyes and you start having conversations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. Oh, my goodness. We'll see you back here for the rest of Bookbird Summer. Cool, cool, cool summer.